Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so happy to have today as my guest, Professor Cristina Rodriguez, the Leighton Homer Surbeck Professor of Law at Yale Law School. Uh, her resume is incredibly impressive and incredibly long, so I'm going to do a, the highlights. She uh, has a bachelor's from Yale, a JD from Yale. She's my first Rhodes Scholar, I think, on Supreme Myths, so that's, that's an awesome thing. Uh, Christina clerked for the uh, D.C. Circuit and then Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, and, of course, she has just finished up her stint, and we're going to talk a lot about it, as co-chair of the Supreme Court Reform Commission with Bob Bauer. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for the conversation. So you are a nationally known expert on immigration law, on um, administrative law. You just wrote the Harvard Law Review Forward, which I think in our profession, for those who don't, we have non-lawyers listening to this, that's about as prestigious as a thing that a law professor can do, uh, whether it just is. And, and your article, Regime Change, is fascinating, and we're going to talk about that. But we have to talk about the commission. And um, people who have been listening to this podcast for a couple of years know, um, you know that this was something that we talked a lot about. So first of all, how did you get involved? Uh, Bob Bauer called me up and asked me if I was interested in co-chairing the commission with him. Yeah. And I said, yes, I uh, have a distant connection to him, but I also have uh, been involved in um, or was involved in the, the presidential transition and right. was in that orbit. And that's how it arose. And you were co-chairs, right? There wasn't any higher. We were. Okay. No, um, no. My wife wanted me to ask you this. She's not a lawyer. She's a business school professor, but <laughs> she knows more about con law than she ever wanted to know. So um, did you have trepidation going in? Like, what were your what were your expectations going in? I My expectations were that we would, if we succeeded, produce a report for the long term. I did not expect that we would resolve any of the right. battles that are going on about court reform. Uh, and it was clear from the beginning with the draft executive order that I, I saw that the objective was not to issue recommendations. So I also expected that we were gonna make a lot of people unhappy by not coming um, up either with proposed reforms or standing behind the ones that are prominent in the debate. Right. But I wasn't sure how it was all going to work out, what kind of report we would ultimately be able to produce because it was a large commission. Yeah. working with that many people on contested issues, uh, especially with a group that is designed to be ideologically diverse, I knew it would be challenging. And so I wasn't sure what the outcome was ultimately going to look like, but it ended up being a report that everyone associated with it was was proud of for one reason or another. Did you and Bob pick the people? Uh, the people were selected through mysterious White House processes. <laughs> uh, That's a great phrase. I've had a few experiences inside administrations, and one of the things that remains opaque is uh, how people end up where they are. So I am um, sorry, this is a brief interruption, but I worked for the Department of Justice back in 87 to 91. I was lucky to get involved in some high profile cases and had to deal with the White House Counsel's Office quite a bit. In fact, Jay mm -hmm. Bybee was there for now Judge Bybee was there for a time when I was there. Mysterious processes is how I would describe most of my interactions with, yes. <laughs> with the White House Counsel's Office. That's awesome. Um, so can I, can I, do you mind if I rant a little bit about my pet peeve about how this commission was staffed? Please do, and then we can talk about it. Okay, so, um, I, you know, I, I wrote a book called Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and its Justices Are Not Judges. And I'm generally thought of as a major critic, a bipartisan critic of the mm -hmm. Supreme Court. And my work is very derivative of the former dean of Stanford Law School, Larry Kramer, Mark Tushnet, who I know you know, um, uh, Jeremy Waldron, who's one of the leading philosophers in the world. Um, and all three of those men, who are all superstars of, of, of constitutional law, and you know, dean of Stanford, Harvard Law professor, Jeremy Waldron, all three of those people do not really believe in strong judicial review or judicial review at all, in Larry's case, maybe. They're all critics of the Supreme Court. They all, when you said ideologically diverse, I don't think it really was because you didn't have anybody in the commission like them, I would say, or me, but I wouldn't expect to be in the commission given my status in life. But those three men have the status where they should have been on the commission. Why, weren't, why wasn't somebody like that on the commission? Well, I think 
you don't necessarily know that there weren't people on okay. the commission who didn't hold who didn't hold those views. Um, many of the people on the commission have not come out with strong statements one way or the other. Okay. The work of each of those people informed the the commission's work because it was a collection of academics. Right. There was a lot of uh, research and uh, thought to theories of the court put into the the work that we did. And Larry Kramer in particular was a witness for us and um, Mark Tushnet submitted really helpful testimony. Right. I also think that there is a chapter of the commission report that shows their influence by focusing on the types of reforms that would disempower the court. And those are not the ones that are in the public debate. There, there's a lot of academic discussion of it. And sure. some of our uh, witnesses are, are kind of heirs to uh, Tushnet and Waldron yes. and, and Kramer. And uh, that idea that the court is too powerful, um, which is, I, I don't mean to say that that is their only idea, but it is no. a, a, you know, an important yeah. element of what they all contend and that much more should be left to the democratic process and we can debate the extent that should be left to the democratic sure. process is engaged in that chapter. And I, I like to think of it as an important contribution because it takes those ideas seriously, but it also raises questions about how effectively that can be accomplished within our existing institutions. And there is a sense uh, throughout the report that uh, there's a lot of water under the bridge <laughs> and a certain reforms that we might think of as ideal design reforms are, are both harder and also potentially counterproductive given the system that we have. And and the that chapter, it's chapter four in, in yeah. the report for anyone who wants to pick it up, uh, pushes people to think about those kinds of issues. Fair enough. I know um, I, I, wrote, I wrote a piece with Chris Sprigman of NYU about court mm -hmm. stripping as kind of a supplement to his big piece on it. And I know right. he was a witness, right? Or at least you heard from him, I think. Yes, um, we yeah. did. Yeah, Chris and I have been working hard on trying to inform the American public our views on the Supreme Court and how overly powerful it is. Um, one issue that I really thought was going to be met with universal, unanimous acclaim from the commission, even all sides, moderate, liberal, conservative, whoever, um, was the idea of a binding ethics code that they would agree to be bound by, even if they wrote it. As long as they agree to be bound by it, I would have thought, I mean, do you, I, let me ask the question this way. Do you find that in any way controversial, that they should have a binding ethics code? I don't. Okay. I think the controversial question is whether they should be left to write it themselves or whether Congress right. tries to draft a code. And, and that is something that we debated. And the report reflects that yeah. uh, that is a potential constitutional question. And, and I think it leans into the view that these are these are issues the court ought to take up, but it ought yeah. to do so itself. Yes. I, I, I do actually agree with you there. I think Congress could, do you think it'd be constitutional for Congress to say some kind of prefatory, we want you to do this, we think it's important you do this, we can't make you do this, but if you don't do this within five years, you're going to have your budget cut by two thirds. That's interesting. I'm, I, I was with you up until the very last point. I'm not sure if okay. that threat of cutting the court's budget would, would in fact work. Uh, would, would would make it constitutional. But I, I do think there's room for, for Congress to, to regulate here. It has uh, the power to, to create the lower courts, obviously, and to right. determine the number of justices on the court and uh, to set certain kinds of standards uh, for the judiciary and it funds the judiciary. So uh, I, I think it's worth debating. But I think in the end, most commissioners probably would have come to the conclusion, and I think the report does this, that that would be very fraught uh, for Congress to do politically and that the court really just needs to step up and devise a code for itself. Do you think they will? A binding. Do you think they will? I don't know. I, I think that you, there's reference to um, testimony by, I think it was Justice Kagan who said it's under under um, consideration yeah. and in the works. I, I hope eventually it will it will do that. And do you think they'll have cameras eventually? I mean, they will eventually. We know they will eventually. How long do you think that will take? Eventually. I don't know how long it will take. <laughs> I, I do think the Supreme Court moves slowly. Yes. Uh, but we, we might find that this now, this same time audio recording will accelerate the process because 
now I, I think people will see that you don't have the justices are serious people. They're not playing to the the public in a way that's counterproductive. Uh, they might be trying to convey views to the public, but they do it in a in a usually a serious fashion. And and so that might eliminate some of the concerns that cameras would distort the the proceedings right. of the court. And it's it's absolutely vital that the public at large that wants to hear the court be able to hear what the court's doing. I I agree with you. What, from, with what you said at the outset, the court is a political institution, and we should know what it's doing and what they're thinking. One of the lowlights, the non-substantive lowlights of my 31 years of being a law professor was watching Justice Kennedy, on who, by the way, I'm a big kind of fan of in some ways, uh, testifying in front of Congress about the budget, being asked about cameras, and him saying basically, well, or my colleagues will misbehave. I'm paraphrasing what he said. And I thought, that's your best response to that question, that your own <laughs> colleagues will misbehave if there are cameras? That's that's very illuminating in a lot of different ways I won't bore you with. Yes. Um, I, I take it you're in favor of cameras in the, in the courtroom. I, I think it's a good idea. I, I do think that the audio recording in this era of podcasts uh, is is good and, yeah. and maybe enough. You know, yeah. we are used to consuming uh, long conversations that way. And, and I think right. that it is very valuable and, and might be enough. Um, can I ask you if you were uh, surprised by anything that happened in this process? Or, or and a related question, did you learn something about either the court or the politics of commissions <laughs> that surprised <laughs> you in this process? Uh, yes, to all three of those okay. questions. So I... <laughs> I was surprised by a number of things. I was surprised by the intensity of feeling about certain issues. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the one, and this is evident in the report, that led to the, the strongest feelings on either side is whether to consider expanding the size of the court. Right. And I, the, that intensity of feeling, I think, led people to read the very same document in very different ways, depending on what their perspective was on the issue. And it was a real education in how even a group of academics can uh, read something and import all of the assumptions they're bringing into about the issue in, in, into their interpretation of that text. And, and so that was sobering and illuminating. Uh, but in, in the end, it, it was also possible, despite that very intense and deep disagreement, to have collegial conversation. And that's in some ways what I valued the most and and people did not hold back with their substantive views. It wasn't as if there were people in a kind of polarized fashion talking just amongst themselves uh, about an issue without communicating with others. There there was confrontation and and deep disagreement in conversation, uh, and it didn't produce consensus, but it did I think produce an understanding, um, yeah. greater understanding, and so that kind of conversation is part of uh, what led, leads to my answer to your next question about what I learned about the court and then and then maybe also the politics of commissions. I, um, I, I learned a lot about reforms that I believed strongly one way or the other about and why they might either be worth considering or might not be all they're cracked up to be. I, I consider myself a supporter of term limits and think that uh, it, it is not a rational design to have the right. system that we have. Right. Uh, but I came to take seriously the arguments that were articulated uh, against it. And among other things, um, what sticks with me the most about the, the conversations, because we focused so much on implementation and execution, was how complicated, in fact, would be to reform the court. There's a whole section in the chapter on term limits about how you would design a constitutional amendment to achieve it and all of the considerations you would have to take into account about how you make the transition from the court that we have now to one where people are serving 18-year terms, which is the number that, yep. that we used. And there is one analogy, and I've said this before in other settings, that a commissioner made that has really stuck with me, and that's that not just the court, but our whole system of government, is they're both like a, a piece of origami um, <laughs> that if you start to unfold, uh, you might not be able to figure out how to put it back together. Uh, and and I think that the, the complexity of reform is not a reason not to think about it seriously, uh, but it is something that I, I think we as a commission contributed 
to the the public debate um and hope i hope will make the the debates about particular reform issues better mm-hmm. by forcing people to confront those kinds of difficulties on the merits of the need for a constitutional amendment to have 18 year terms on that just precise issue mm-hmm. um when i've i've wrestled with a lot in my career i i, I think so um on my podcast, I have to mention retired Judge Posner once a podcast because that's just something I do. Um, and one thing that surprised me was that both Judge Posner and Akhil Amar, your colleague, two people mm-hmm. who really have no love lost for each other. They've had public disputes and battles. They both agreed separately, but agreed that giving the justices 18-year terms and then saying you can be in the lower courts, leaving aside the policy implications, which which I think Akil clearly likes, and that, and sort of Judge Posner at the end, um, does not require a constitutional amendment. And I got to say, I really agree with that. I, I think that's pretty yeah. obvious to me. That wasn't obvious to the commission. Do you have any personal feelings about that? So I think that the commission report does canvas three leading proposals for mm-hmm. statutory reform for term yeah. limits. And in the process, thinks through the constitutional arguments. And I, I do think that those arguments are plausible arguments. Um, the I, I think where I come down personally is that in some ways that question is beside the point, uh, because if we're going to do something as dramatic as end the presumption of life tenure and uh, create 18-year terms, that doing that through the legislative process alone might be too destabilizing, particularly if we remain in the kind of polarized context that we're in. It will seem like an assault on the court and on a particular wing of the court, depending on when the legislation arises. And I think that the constitutional questions are sufficiently difficult that that proceeding through amendment is, is the more pragmatic, the more prudential, choice. And the commission report underscores that, that even those who find the statutory arguments plausible believe that it would be too destabilizing to have Congress attempt to change the court in that fashion. I also tend to think, um, this might reveal something about what I think about the state of the legislative process, that an ordinary legislative process might not be up to figuring out all right. of the complexities right. uh, and that uh, you would want to style it as a kind of constitutional process that um, took those complexities a bit more seriously. Fair enough. So I have one more question about this, which is totally self-serving, and then we'll talk about your amazing scholarship, which I'm interested in. Um, but, so I, I preface this by saying this is totally self-serving. Um, I'm in a footnote in the report. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't. I know it's a long report with a lot of footnotes, so I wouldn't expect you necessarily. But I'm in a footnote. But what you just said about the legislative process is why I want to bring this up. So after Justice Scalia passed away in 2016, I published a whole bunch of things in places like the New York Times, Daily Beast, Huffington Post, Pepperdine Law Review Symposium, um, that I thought the the Senate should freeze the court at four Republicans and four Democrats which mm-hmm. they, they, they couldn't do. The president can nominate anybody. We know that. But we also know that the Senate doesn't have to give anybody a hearing. We, we learned that painfully. Right. Um, so, and, and, my, and, and the real reason, I, I knew that would never happen, especially because liberals had their mouths watering about Hillary Clinton appointing mm-hmm. three justices and all that stuff. But the reason I did it at that moment of time was I thought, this is where we, we're really in kind of almost a Rawlsian moment, you know, where we don't know which way the court is going to go. We don't know if, who's going to, you know, where it's going to be balanced. Let's all agree now on reform when, when we don't know what the future holds. Yeah. And, and, the, and the, 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 I'm a, everyone knows I'm a progressive by nature, though an anti-judicial review. I'm in the Mark Tushnet, Larry Kramer school. Um, I was um, amazed that conservatives and Republicans were much more um, – amenable to that idea than liberals and progressives at the time. And that made mm-hmm. me really sad. I still yeah. think a balanced Supreme Court, like New Hampshire's state Supreme Court, I think, um, is the best of all worlds because then every decision has to be bipartisan by definition. Yeah. Do you think I'm nuts? <laughs> I remember that footnote. So okay. thank you. <laughs> I, I think I could find it pretty quickly if I picked it up, I picked the report up. 
I think there's something to that. I think there's something to structures that force consensus and force uh, cross ideological compromise. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, it depends on what the structure, what the composition of the court looks like um, when you have that uh, that even balance. You might not have two sides, right? Um, And it might only be in cases that don't have a strong ideological valence where the four to four makes a difference. And then that wouldn't be a bad thing for the development of the law to force consensus in those cases. Uh, I'm guessing that the reason liberals are not taken with the idea is- Oh, they are now. They are now. They just weren't then. Well, now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, because of the belief that the the law and the court have gone too far over to the other side and there's a correction that needs to happen. Um, So I was trying to avoid that very problem by doing it at that moment in time. But um, right. anyway, right. Well, I, and if I could just say yeah. as a uh, as a matter of uh, personal privilege about the commission report, as I said at the beginning, I did not expect it in any way to resolve any of the disputes that are happening or to push reform right now at this moment, both because of the effective balance of power in the political system. There's just simply not power on the side of those who would say want to expand the court or do something else dramatic to achieve those objectives. But I do think that it reintroduces important ideas about how to exercise political control over the court and its structure. And as Larry Kramer said in his testimony before, is it puts certain tools back on the table and that at a future moment when the political system, when the country is at a place where we might achieve consensus on some of these issues and where the fight is not about these deep ideological disagreements in the sense that you know the, the order that progressives are accustomed to is is being strangled that we could in fact get reform of of the court of one sort or another and that this report uh will be an important resource during those debates so i lied about it being my last question because your last comment makes me ask something else um, or say something else. And I apologize. Um, I really hope you're right, by the way. I mean, I, 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 with all my heart and soul, I hope you are right. I've been fighting these issues for 30 years. We did a symposium in 2016 called Invisible Justices, where really the leading lights came in, including Adam Liptak, Dolly Lithwick, Robert Barnes of, of Washington Post. And we talked about all these issues, ethics, term, the whole thing. Um, and I thought it was a really good symposium. Um, and part of my motivation for doing the work on that was to have something in writing people could use in the future. You know, um, so I hope you're right. My fear and the fear of people who are sympathetic to my view of the court is that this almost might end up not helping the cause because it might be viewed by some as they looked at it. They couldn't change anything. They gave up. They wrote kind of a typical executive branch report of something, you know. Um, I hope I'm wrong about that. I hope you're right, but I don't know what the future holds. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it is hard to say, and I think one could read the report as taking some of the momentum away from yes. uh, the movement for for court reform. Uh, but I but I do think it's worth emphasizing that on some issues the divide was not strictly partisan and was in fact about the value of judicial independence and the concern that, as I said before, if you start unwinding the system, what are you going to put in its place? Um, And people think about the risks differently. There are risks associated with not reforming the court, and there are risks associated with all of the reform proposals, particularly court expansion. And no one can predict how those risks are going to play out. Um, Fair and, enough. But you have to decide which are the which are the the, the risks that are, are worth taking. And and by you, I mean people with political power. So yes. neither of us, right? <laughs> but <laughs> right. right, make the actual decisions. Right. Um, right. And I hope that the report will be useful in, in that sense as well, in making clear what the trade-offs are and what's at stake, um, and that that, in the end, will make reform better and not kill it before it gets off the ground. And to support what you said, I think real change is possible, and this is, and I'm really going to move on after I say this. Um, in 2000, and I want to say 12 or 13, don't hold me to it, I tried to get about 15 of the most famous law professors in con law in the country to sign a op-ed-ish type letter about cameras in the court. 
And I wanted mm-hmm. it to be bipartisan complete. I wanted, you know, six or seven Federalist Society folks and six or seven ACS folks, American Constitution Society. And in 2013, this was a partisan issue. I could find almost no conservatives who were willing to go out strongly for cameras in the court. And that has changed dramatically. I think now my informal poll is like 80% of the federal society elite would like to see cameras in the court. That's a huge change in a very short period of time. So maybe you're right. Maybe significant change can happen on a bipartisan basis quickly if the need arises. Yeah, I'd be curious what their reasons are, because there are a number of different reasons why you would think that we should see what's happening inside the courtroom. Well, the main reason, and Randy Barnett articulated this the most, the main reason was, at the time, I think Randy may have changed his mind on this, was they they thought it would erode the independence of the court, and they had various arguments for that. I didn't agree with any of those arguments. But that was the main reason, that it would make it harder for the court, this won't surprise you coming from Randy, to enforce individual rights and to do the unpopular thing. Um, yeah. that, but I think I think most have changed their mind on that. Yeah, maybe it's because we're all so exposed now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me about that. That's really a thrill for me, and thank you. All right. So first of all, for anybody interested in immigration law, they should read your co-author book, The President and, Im- and Immigration Law. It is fascinating. Um, I don't want to talk too much about that because I want to get to your article. But can you summarize the thesis of that book? Because I think it's I think the thesis itself is really interesting. Yes. So um, Adam Cox and I wrote this book, uh, it's now been uh, over a year since it was published, that was based on over a decade of work. And the, the basic argument is twofold. Uh, the first is that assumptions that it is Congress that controls immigration policy are uh, not consistent with history or with practice, but it is in fact the, the president who is the immigration uh, policymaker in chief. And that is not the result of today's polarized politics um, right. or of the capa- incapacity of Congress to act, which are two, which are obviously related and are two reasons that people cite for why there's so much presidential immigration law today. It's actually deeply rooted in history. And that leads to the, the second important argument in the book, which is that um, the way that our immigration law and policy is shaped has been through the rise of this massive enforcement regime, uh, through the creation of wide-ranging legal authorities that make immigration status probationary and contingent, and through, over the last hundred years, the creation of a very powerful state, um, an overweening state, some might say. And that has the effect of empowering the president to make judgments. And that is especially true in our era because of the rise of illegal immigration that makes it impossible to remove all of the people who are removed under the code. And you end up with enforcement priorities and policies like DACA as ways of expressing how to manage this enforcement problem. And and we proceed from that descriptive account to then um, defend the, the president's power over the system as a way of ensuring both uh, rationalized decision-making, but also is the only hope for injecting humanitarianism into the system, but then also critique the, the system that, that is not of the president's design. It's the president and Congress together over time creating uh, and argue in the end that we need to unwind the enforcement logic at the heart of the system. And that is the fundamental problem, not that the president's exercising too much power, uh, but of course, that logic is the product of a deep political economy and immigration law and collaboration between Congresses across time, and it will be very difficult to undo. You know, um, a couple questions, a couple follow-up questions about that, and, and it's a fascinating thesis and, and a fascinating book. Um, the Zivotofsky case, and there are non-lawyers who listen to this, so just give me a second to, the Zivotofsky case involved a, a federal statute that purported to require the Secretary of State, I think, to to put on passports of people born in Jerusalem that they were born in Israel, and the the consistent uh, the, the consistent position of Republican and Democrat presidents forever has been they take no position on Jerusalem up to Trump anyway they, they take no position on Jerusalem, um, and so there was a battle between Congress and the president on this, which. Mm-hmm. The lower courts wisely dismissed for lack of jurisdiction, in my opinion, but the Supreme Court ended up hearing anyway and sided with the executive branch. 
Yeah. And I, th- I don't know if you know my colleague, Neil Kinkoff. You probably do, but he's, yes, I do. okay. I do. So, so Neil's a separation of powers expert, so I don't usually argue with him on those issues. But I think he's wrong about this. He thought that case was completely right. I'm not sure, but it certainly supports your view that it is the, because the president won that battle, that the president is really the one who controls a lot of what we think of as immigration policy. Yeah, it that is the case. Um, I think that there, the power over foreign affairs is kind of interwoven yes. into the way that courts review presidential and congressional decision making with respect to immigration law. But the other dimension of it is um, that the power arises from uh, what we call in the book de facto delegation. It's actually uh, a statutory construct, but it's not an express delegation. It is the result of the rules that Congress has created mapping on poorly to reality on the ground and effectively leaving it, delegating it to the executive to, through enforcement to make choices about the kind of immigration policy that, that we're going to have. Right. Um, there are also, of course, a, a number of express delegations of authority to the executive that, um, that exist in part for foreign affairs reasons, uh, but it's... The, the power that we're talking about in the book is one that is the creation of both of the political branches of, of government and the way they've responded to the politics of immigration and to the um, developed the system over time. Posner used to rant to me all the time in a very high pitched voice how frustrated he was with the immigration judges that he had to deal mm-hmm. with in the Seventh yeah. Circuit. And he would yell at me because I'm always for deference to most political actors, and he would fight with me about that, but mostly he would use that as an example of there should be no, no discretion given to these, he would call them like terrible, awful judges because they just, you know, deny, 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 deport, deport, deport. Do you think he had a point? Uh, I think that that's an, that's an exaggeration of what okay. they do. I think that immigration judges are under an extraordinary strain um, they have dockets that they cannot manage. That's what he said. And yeah. they do have limited authority. Yeah. I, I think that many of them are very effective or at least um, understand the ins and outs of the code in ways that I'm sure courts of appeals judges do not. But many of them have to make really quick judgments. Right. Uh, and often those judgments are not well supported by reasoning. And I think that... Right that for for the courts of appeals that oversee the system, that has historically been incredibly frustrating. Yes, that's what he would say. Um, one last question about immigration before we get to your article um, uh, in Harvard. Um, so I, I take your position to be that it's a good positive thing that the president, the executive branch, has a lot of authority over immigration. They should. They're on the ground. I'm assuming I have all that correct. I'm yes. very nervous, and I've written about the disastrous major powers doctrine that I think is a fiction of the imagination of a few of the justices in the Federalist Society. Um, That may come to play to haunt you, I think, in that, I mean, right? I mean, if that becomes a real thing, then it's going to affect immigration policy. Is that a fair worry? You mean the the major questions doctrine? Yeah. Yes, it will. It will. I I think that, and this is something that I highlight in the forward as well, is among the suite of doctrines in which the court is hampering the administrative state from from acting. I I think at least in the immigration setting that much of what happens, whether it's uh, interpretation of the INA through rules or efforts to guide enforcement discretion, might not run afoul of that particular doctrine because at least the the kinds of things that um, recent administrations have attempted fit within the the four corners of the statute. I I think maybe the one exception may be when DACA makes its way back up to the Supreme Court because it's being challenged um, and has been invalidated by um, uh, another district court that some version of the major questions doctrine, that impulse is going to shape the way the court reviews it, which is to say that even though there has been regulatory authority to grant work authorization to people who receive deferred action. And even though deferring prosecution is a time-honored tool, neither of those was ever intended to allow the executive to basically give a functional status to 
800,000 people. Uh, and, and that's just too big an, an assertion of the authority. And so right. I, I think you're right that in, in that sense, um, we've already seen that impulse and it's not yes. phrased as major questions because it doesn't fit that particular line of doctrine, but it's the same idea that Congress has to be the one to make these choices because they're so significant that we want the deliberative body, the legislature to be the one to make them. Yeah, it strikes me, and you're an expert in administrative law, it strikes me that immigration policy has to be so guided to what's really happening in the world that, and this is a subset of my general views about the administrative state, but I just think to expect Congress to be able to foresee ahead of time all of the needs and difficulties and changes and pandemics and all that stuff um, is asking a lot of that body. Yeah. I assume you agree with that. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's both expecting Congress to foresee uh, changed demographics. Yeah. The yeah. situation, the immigration situation looks entirely different today than it did 30 years ago, the last time Congress right. enacted a major reform. But right. it's, it's also unrealistic, and this is not just during the immigration setting, but to expect Congress to be able to legislate with regularity on every issue that comes before the administrative state. Sure, Congress, even a functional one, should be able to enact legislation in every um, in every session, but to expect that to be the case across all issue areas uh, in order to uh, enable the government to adapt to changing circumstances is entirely unrealistic. And just for the record, for those originalists listening to this, um, I had Julian Mortensen on earlier on this podcast, but um, I have now done a lot of, I've actually done some of the work, a lot of the work. There is no originalist argument about this. I mean, I, I think that the, the first Congress understood it had to delegate significant issues to the executive, and it did. And I, my view is that, the, is that this whole area of law is being warped by our current regime. I don't know if you agree with that or not. I, I, do, I do think that it is being warped. I, I think that this scholarship that looks to uh, original practice and original understanding is incredibly valuable. But I also think that the the re-rise of the non-delegation doctrine is not just about originalism or for, it's, it's about an aversion to regulation of course uh, yes. and an aversion to the state yes. uh, and and so um as long as it's debatable on originalist grounds it's that aversion that's going to drive yeah. the analysis so i'll say to you what i said to julian i really want to call it the delegation doctrine not the non-delegation right. doctrine because right. that's <laughs> right. what that's what it really should be it should, it is. Yeah. yeah okay all right so um you were asked to write the Harvard Law Review Forward, which is a huge mm -hmm. honor. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. And um, the title of it is called Regime Change. Now, it's 150 pages, I think. So we're not going to, you know, we, there's only so much we can do in the 10 or 15 minutes we have to discuss this. But I found it fascinating. And again, for the non-lawyers listening, um, your major, uh, I want to say what you were addressing, it, it's so much more than this, but you start off by talking about how the Biden administration, like all previous administrations, the Solicitor General's office, which is that part of the Justice Department that argues cases in the Supreme Court, um, had changed positions on a number of cases, which is not unusual at all. Um, and that's kind of, you start there. You start with, what do we think mm -hmm. about that? What does that mean? Is that appropriate? And what did you come away, what, what were some of your conclusions? So I think that that decision is both an obvious one and a fraught one. So when a, a new administration is elected, it inaugurates not just a, a new president, but a new set of policy priorities and an, a new legal philosophy. And you know we know that as scholars of, of constitutional right. law, that uh, there is a difference between partisanship and legal ideology or interpretive theory, but there is a connection. and. The, um, the the lawyers who are going to take over the Department of Justice uh, in a new administration of a different political party, especially at this moment in time, will have a different view, not just of uh, how they should interpret the law, but what becomes possible with the laws that we have once you engage in that interpretation. They'll also have different constitutional visions about sure. the authority of the state and the reach of the state and the rights-based limits on the state. So it is should be uncontroversial that a new administration will have a new set of uh, legal arguments and legal positions that might necessitate changing their view and the term that corresponds to the, the presidential transition. 
At the same time, uh, it seems very clear that the Solicitor General's office and DOJ as a whole uh, has institutional interests in not appearing to change its mind uh, on every case where there might be right. partisan implications or, or policy implications. I, I do think that in some issue areas, uh, the lawyers of an administration understand that there is something called the interests of the United States and uh, that those uh, are institutional interests, their interest in government power uh, and making sure that government power is preserved and that some of that comes from the career staff in the department, but it's also an ethos that that lawyers have and government lawyers have, including those who are political officials. So that will shape the extent to which policy positions change or legal positions change in order to advance policy positions. And then there's also the interest in preserving credibility before the court. And there are only so many times you want to face a justice who says, our predecessor, or your <laughs> predecessor said that the statute meant the exact opposite. Now, who's right? How could a, the same statute mean two entirely different things? And it's possible to interpret a statute to, to, to mean very different things, or at least to make very different outcomes possible. Um, and, and yet it, it's hard to explain that day in and day out. And so it, it is important to the department to maintain that credibility and not make career staff uh, feel as if suddenly everything that they have invested in uh, is going to change overnight. Um, but I use those changes in legal position both you know, opportunistically because um, it was a moment of transition. And one of the things that was characteristic of this past term, which didn't have a lot of high profile cases, though there were obviously some very important ones, uh, was that you had a new administration with a new um, set of senior lawyers taking different positions. But to also say that that is just the beginning, right? So you need lawyers who can come in and say, well, we have a different view of what is legally possible. We have a different view of what is legally required. Uh, we have a different view of what the Constitution enables or restricts. But if you really want to change uh, the work of government, you have to do much more than just change your, your legal position. And uh, what I end up calling regime change requires work deep inside the administrative state and uh, requires the assertion of, of power at, at high levels by political officials to make that change happen. So your article, um, which is fascinating, um, uh, it, it, it touched so many different issues in my head that I, I, I have to admit, I, I want to say like 15 things, so I'm going to narrow it down to, to a couple. But one of the things, so I, I work for Department of Justice, and I work closely mm -hmm. with OLS, the Office of Legal Counsel, which you also worked for on um, mm -hmm. different times, but also. And when I when I worked for the first George Bush, and I was a progressive working for the first George Bush, it never dream, I never dreamed I'd, have, I'd be involved in political cases. I was a low-level yeah. trial attorney. But it turned out I ended up being involved in like six really big political cases, including mm -hmm. Iran-Contra and closing the Palestinian mission to the United Nations and all this stuff. So I really saw how it worked at the highest levels. And I want to say that in the post-Ronald Reagan, first George Bush Office of Legal Counsel, um, my experience was there was a lot of not just rubber stamping what the president wanted to do. There was a sense of history of, I don't know if the Trump OLC had that. Do you want to express an opinion about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure whether they did or not. Right. Um, and I think that um, in retrospect, we might learn more about yeah. whether that was the case. I, we do know that there were some officials at DOJ who resisted different dimensions of what yes. the president wanted and that you know, our, our last president crossed lines of de facto independence yes. that um, none of his predecessors uh, did with the same kind yes. of frequency. But I will say that this might not have been true during the Trump years, but something that, that I emphasize in the forward, and it comes out in empirical research I've done with another collaborator, Anya Bernstein, is that when thinking about a political transformation of an administration, it's just as important to think about who the political officials are within agencies and not just think about what's emanating from the White House. And that just by design, by the fact that there are so many departments and that the reach of the executive branch is so vast, there will be independence uh, between the, the White House and those departments. Right. And 
that people who are working as political officials bring to the decision-making process, whether it's a policy one or a legal one, a connection to a set of political ideas and policy aspirations, but they also uh, end up intertwined with the institutional interests of the department. And those two things have a way of uh, ensuring, uh, if not fidelity to law, at least proximity to law. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. And, and, and that um, there, there are, um, I don't want to say pockets of resistance, but that there, there are places where, um, where it's not just a, a seamless move from uh, winning an election to enacting right. all of your ambitions, regardless right. of the legal structure that exists beneath it. And so one of the things that I'm trying to accomplish with this piece is to talk about that political regime in a, in a much more comprehensive and dynamic way than a lot of the literature that focuses just on presidentialism does. And, and to try to justify that kind of political decision-making intertwined with other forms of uh, legal and policymaking. When you say justify, I assume you mean, uh, I got the sense of this, is that regime change is good and we should yes. and we should encourage it to a point not no one is suggesting we write the entire thing but 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 do i have that right that generally speaking you're yes. justifying strong regime change when administrations change yeah i i yes i'm i'm trying to justify politically informed decision making inside agencies and concerted efforts to use the 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 tools that exist which include primarily statutory authorities to advance uh, democratic objectives. And I, I don't mean that in any, you know, uh, platonic sense or idealized sure. sense um, or as a way of invoking some idea of the plebiscitary presidency. I, I mean, instead, that the, the people who enter with the regime as a whole are part of a political tradition, part of a political culture, or part of a set of ideas. And it is important that government reflect those ideas because they're ideas that have been not just elected into office, but are a part of our political culture and should shape the way that government operates. And I just don't think that there is really such a thing as a neutral interpretation of or a neutral implementation of a statute. A statute constrains, of course, right. what an agency or an official can do, but there is almost an inherently political dimension to what uh, you do with it. And, and I think that's something that um, we ought to embrace both at the level of administrative decision-making, but also in, in judicial doctrine that reviews that decision-making. So I, I, when, I, when I read your article, um, I, it, it's the best kind of legal scholarship, in my opinion, because it, it's, it's justifying on normative grounds something that I think happens anyway and trying mm -hmm. to make what happens anyway the best it can be. Um, and, and I think that's just, you know, um, I tend to be more critical and maybe uh, utopian in my scholarship. So I think that's I think that's really good. Something hit me hard, though, and it's a sideways. This is a sideways thing. I thought. Yeah. So I'm teaching Casey tonight and mm -hmm. it is the 29th year in a row that I've taught Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which for the non-lawyers in the room uh, was the case that reaffirmed some of Roe, didn't affirm all of Roe. But it's the, the undue burden standard we've been living with now since 1992. Um, and the very opening paragraph, I think, of Casey, or at least in the first page of Casey, is the statement that just like it has done five times before, the administration is asking us to reverse Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. So in the 90s, I'm sorry, in the 80s, five different cases, the Reagan-Bush administrations went to the Supreme Court and said reverse Roe versus Wade. Um, and of course, the Casey court rejects that and doesn't do it. This June, whether they reverse it or not on its face, they are going to change it dramatically, as we all expect. Here's my sideways question to you about regime change. Mm -hmm. I One last time on Judge Posner, who said, if changing judges changes law, do we know what law is? Are you in favor of regime change at the Supreme Court to the same degree you are in favor of regime change in the exec? You get, you get what I'm getting at. You you, yes, you saw I it coming do, ten minutes ago. Okay, um, I do. Yeah. Go ahead. So I think so. The, so I'm going to give you first the easy answer. Okay. And then a, a, an answer that's more challenging okay. uh, for me to to give and okay. is probably 
in the end, the better answer if I can articulate it well enough. And so the, the easy answer is that uh, the courts and the executive branch are different kinds of institutions. And uh, we don't think about Congress reforming an area of the law or repealing a law or um, enacting radical change as being problematic in any kind of constitutional separation of power sense. Right. You might have significant policy fights over it, right? Sure. Um, so that's on one end of the spectrum. The court is on the, the other end of the, the spectrum where stare decisis matters to the legitimacy of its judgments and they are not accountable uh, officials. They have life tenure until the commission report does its work <laughs> in the long run. And uh, as a result, they should be incredibly modest in the way they go about changing the law, that major changes are for political actors to make. The executive branch is somewhere in the middle, and in my view, much closer to Congress. Mm -hmm. I don't dispute that we need uh, doctrine or, or statutes, and I should say, and then attendant doctrines that ensure that that agencies are adhering to statutory mandates and that they're engaged in reasoned decision-making and not arbitrary decision-making. We allow Congress to be arbitrary, um, for better or for worse, and that has a lot to do with its structure and the way its decisions are are right. made. Uh, but it it is a problem if that proceduralism, if that emphasis on constraining executive power goes too far um, and and disables government from doing its work and disables political figures with political um, legitimacy from shaping that work. And, and because I think that, uh, you know, government should be in the service of the people, um, it is something that ought to change to reflect the way um, the you know, political views are, are changing and the needs and wants of the people are changing. Now, in our time, uh, it is hard to say that there's anything but division on that question. And so we're right. talking back and forth between different uh, regimes that have very different visions. And that's a separate problem. But I don't think it is illegitimate uh, in the same way that it might be for the court each time a new case comes before it to remake the law and to completely abandon uh, stare decisis. There's a section in the paper that I refer to as political stare decisis that I yeah. call political stare decisis and and um, say that that informs the views that a lot of people have about the importance of stability in executive governance um, and uh, should shape the way courts review changes in the law in particular, but also just administrative development generally. And, and I think that is a problem because uh, it is importing judicial norms onto a political process or a process that is uh, both political and um, supposed to be insulated to one degree or another from from politics. So, so um, that was the easy answer. I forgot what the hard answer was. <laughs> well, let me, let, me, well, let me follow up on the easy I, one. No, I, I mean, I think, okay, yeah, you follow up. I, I remember what I was going to say. I'll just say very quickly yeah, that if I, if I really wanted to lean into the claim, then I would say, yes, uh, we should accept regime change at the court because it reflects... Um, the the evolution in popular view these are not uh, neutral decisions the court makes if a you know political regime is in control of the court it should be able to shape its its judgments and there's no right answer for many of these cases the vast majority of these cases there is not a right answer um, but I'm not I'm not prepared to do that because of some of the institutional values uh, that I've mentioned already so so that leads me to I think my last and maybe the hardest question. Um... And I admit I'm a little bit conflicted about this, though, though less than most law professors. So one of the things the court will say in June, or whenever it eventually gets around to reversing Roe and Casey, which I think it will eventually do, um, is they're going to find some way to say we're not doing this solely because the people on the court changed. They're going to find some way to say that, and we're all going to laugh and say, why are you saying that when we all know that it's not true? So so, so that's the – do you agree with me that's what's probably going to happen? Yes. Okay. So, I do. Okay. So here's my hard, I think, really hard question. Would you rather live in a world where, and we're talking only now about cases people really care about. I mean, because we all agree the court takes 80% of cases no one cares about, and no one's going to care if they change their mind in 80% of those cases. But in the ones that involving affirmative action, abortion, guns, campaign finance reform, fourth or sixth, eighth amendments, all that stuff. We live in a regime now where the court does reverse itself on a regular basis for no other reason than the people on the court changed. Right. 
as much as they deny it. Are we better off in a world where they at least feel the need to explain it in different terms? Or are we better, which might be constraining in some situations, or are we better off in a world where they just admit it? And this opinion comes down in June, reversing Roe and Casey, and says, you know what? They got it wrong. And, we, and the court has said that in the past. I mean, Kennedy said mm-hmm. Bowers was wrong the day it was decided. Plessy was wrong the day it was decided. We disagree with them, and we're reversing for that reason. But that's not what they usually do. Right. Should we have full transparency here, or is the lesser transparency maybe the lesser evil? Is that a fair question to ask? Yeah, it, it is a fair question. I often ask my students this question. And and I, I tend to think that it, it would be better to have the honest answer, which is we're reversing it because this was wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I do think there is some value in, I would call this the Chief Justice Roberts strategy on this issue in particular, which is to not take on the big question, does this constitutional right not exist at all? but instead to um, develop over time limits on that right in a way that gets you almost the functional equivalent of the the overruling, at least in certain parts of the country uh, where there's the political momentum to restrict abortion. I I think as a strategy, that is a good one for a court because it allows for the gradual evolution of the law, but it also is a kind of subterfuge because it lulls people into thinking that something different is happening than what is actually happening. And I think that can stunt the political process. And uh, it might be the case that um, if the court had been more forthright about this, um, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, that um, it had been willing to overturn the decision outright, that instead of chipping away at it, that there would be more social mobilization around the issue in a way that that shapes the um, the scope of the right at the political level. But right. that that I think is a little overly idealistic. Um, what I would also say to uh, the the person who says the only reason that this is changing is because of the change of the personnel of the court, I would say that behind that change of personnel, uh, there's been a massive social movement, right? And there has been by some people's lights, dirty politics in court nominations to get us say, to yeah. this point. We confronted this on the commission, right? Yeah. We wouldn't be here if uh, Merrick Garland had been appointed to right. the Supreme Court. Other now we would might have a different kind of, not a 6-3, but a 5-4 in, right. in the other direction. Um, so you can't remove that from the debate, but it's not as if what is happening is illegitimate uh, because whether you agree with the constitutional arguments or not, uh, there are lots of people mobilized to make the argument that the court got it wrong. And it's a popular mobilization, and it's one that's reflected in democratic enactment after democratic enactment. And so while I would be hypercritical of a decision to overturn Roe and Casey, I think it has to be on the merits. Um, and you have to make the argument on the merits and not try to to say that it was illegitimate, leaving aside whatever dirty politics you think went into the court we have today. My response to that is, in a functioning majoritarian democracy, I would agree with every syllable you just uttered, but in our non-functioning, non-majoritarian democracy, um, where we have so many ways to choke off majority rule, I I think abortion is the quintessential example of this. I mean, affirmative action is too, to some degree, but abortion more, in that it turns out you know, I don't know, 60% of Americans don't want to overturn Roe or whatever the number is, but it's 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 a lot. The movement that is causing Roe to be and Casey to be either decimated or overturned is not a popular movement. It's just a very well-funded minority movement. And that's why I'm not sure. I think when we live in that world where well-funded minorities on both sides can dictate policy, I, I think transparency at the highest court in the land is the most important value. I think that's yeah. what I think. Does that make sense? Yes. It does. It does make sense. And I think that all of these debates that we're having have to be on some level uh, better informed by the the limits of our structure of government. Yeah. Right? Um, and at one point in, in the forward, I emphasize that I'm you know, I'm talking about change that can happen with the system that we have. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, there right. aren't flaws in that system and that we shouldn't change it or, th- or think about an, a, a better way and an alternative. Um, 
and and that's always a possible reaction to these kinds of debates right. about what's legitimate and and what's not and what's popular and and what's not. Well, and I'll stress again, that's what I found so um, wonderful. One of many things about your article in that um, many of us in the academy do take quasi-utopian or quasi-unrealistic stances and try to judge. Your article wrestles with reality in a way, especially for the Harvard Law Review Forward, that is, is really, really powerful. And I, I, want to, I, I urge people, it's, it's very long, so don't, but I urge people to, to read uh, the forward called Regime Change uh, in the Harvard Law Review. I really encourage people to read the President and Immigration Law. I know you're on Twitter, but only kind of or sort of. You don't really do stuff only there. Only kind of. Yeah. Um, but you are a scholar people should read. Um, and I really, really appreciate you coming on. I've learned a tremendous amount in this hour. And I wish I could talk to you for five hours, but I only have an hour. So well, we'll, we'll have to do this again in some other forum or yes. even even on the podcast again in a yes. few years. But it's, <laughs> it's been a total pleasure. I'm really glad we had the chance to talk. Me too. Um, thank you so much. Well, and, th- and thank you for your for your service on the Reform Commission, even if I have issues with how you had no control over how it was structured and how it was done. So yeah. uh, thank you so much. I, I- I'm all in favor of critique, so <laughs> don't hold back. <laughs> nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. You too. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye.